Luke 19, please. Luke 19. There in verse 28 to 36, we, as we read this morning, the, uh, Jesus has sent two of his disciples to Bethany to get a young colt for his use to ride. As you know, the sunset would be from uh, Friday evening to Saturday evening. So this is, this is not the Sabbath, but this is Sunday. So this is the day after the Sabbath in which this is taking place. They had been in the home of Lazarus. Lazarus is the one who he had raised from the dead. Uh, apparently they had a, a, a good, good friendship uh, and his sisters lived with Bethany, uh, Bethany uh, Mary and Martha. Um, and thinking about that, by the way, sometimes we have this concept that the, Christ himself was 33. We have this idea sometimes that his disciples must have been in their 50s or 60s. It's actually probably more uh, precise to think of his disciples and his followers, those who became even apostles, were possibly in their late 20s or even early 30s. So these were, these were young adults, basically. And there were others who were older. Remember Simeon at, in the uh, temple? He had, been, he had waited many years to hold the Messiah in his hands. And Anna. Uh, so there wasn't, that's not exclusively young, young men, young women, but there were, there were those who became his apostles, disciples. Uh, this time may have been of a, a young adult-type uh, age. But even as we look at uh, Peter, for instance, he was married, but he was well-established in business. So there's a, there's a lot of freedom there as far as the age goes uh, to them. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. It's a good possibility that, that during these days, or even when Jesus often would come to uh, Jerusalem, he possibly stayed in Bethany with Lazarus and, and some of his disciples. Not all of them, I don't think, could stay with him. But there was enough of family in and around, apparently, Jerusalem for them to be able to do that before they would, as they would go in and out of Jerusalem to uh, serve and minister, especially during this week that was happening now. So Sunday, they, he enters Jerusalem. We had the incident of the colt. Uh, Matthew identifies it as a foal of a donkey. It had never been ridden before. Uh, and the, the, simple, the instructions are simple. The Lord has need of him. We think of a colt or a donkey being of little value. But in that time and day, it was of great value. It would be very similar of you walking up to somebody who has a Rolls Royce, and you see the keys in it, and you get in it, and you turn around and start driving off, and the owner runs out and says, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it. Okay, that's, this is the type of, of financial, uh, or the, the worth of it. So he, they go and they are loosing it, and the owner walks out and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, the Lord has need of it. He never asks what world they're talking about. He doesn't ask why. There's, there's no questions. Now, what were the prearrangements? We don't know. The Lord had need of the colt, and that's, that settled it. So they went into town. They got that and brought it back. Probably the most important thing there to keep in mind is Zechariah 9.9. This was fulfillment of prophecy. The Lord had need of it. It fulfilled the prophetic story there written to us in Zechariah 9.9. So Palm Sunday, which is today, 
begins the Passion Week. These are the days and events leading to the arrests, the trials, the crucifixion, and burial of Jesus. And you can read, starting in chapter 19, all the way through chapter 23, or at least in Luke. Uh, some of the Gospels, even more chapters, cover this, the times and events and things that are going on. What we're looking at this morning is just looking at the, the entrance, uh, his coming into um, Jerusalem itself. Cheers, jeers, and tears. Uh, if, you, if you don't remember anything else, remember the title. Because when you look at this triumphal entry, these are the things that will stand out to you, and these are actually the things I want to look at this morning. But just give some uh, simple uh, three background details. First of all, everyone in Israel knew that the Messiah would be enthroned as king in Israel. And you say, Pastor Ken, how can you say that? How Everyone knew that. Well, you, get, you have to remember, they were very consistent in teaching the Old Testament scriptures to their children, to their children's children, etc. Secondly, they had practiced, they had celebrated Passover, Day of Atonement, uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. These were feast days. They were all mem- uh, memorials and continually reaffirmed the truth of the Scripture. Um, and then, of course, as the Scripture unfolds, I mean, even we can go back and look and see as the Scripture unfolds, beginning in Gen- Genesis, and then we get into... Uh, Numbers and Isaiah and Zechariah and many others and see how all of it is leading to and talking about the Messiah and actually in Zechariah 9, 9, of course, is coming on a cold. So these, these scriptures, if you knew the scriptures like they knew the scriptures, they, they were looking for, they were anticipating a Messiah. So this fit their theology. This fit their theology. The Passover feast was about to begin. Uh, of course, the name, the Passover, the angel passed over. This is the redemption of Israel from Egypt. And this is how they celebrated it. And, and this was the first holy day. It was instituted before the giving of the law, before the building of the tabernacle, before the priesthood, before the Levitical sacrificial system. This holy day was established before those things even came into place. And it was supposed to be celebrated every year. And so this, this Passover is when the death angel, because they followed the instructions by sacrificing the lamb, taking the, the blood from the lamb, putting it on the doorpost, and the death angel passed over that home. If you didn't have the blood on the doorpost, the death angel passed through that home, and the oldest child was killed. So this was celebration of the Passover, the death angel passing over their home, and they were redeemed, they were set free from Egypt. And I've told this to you before. There's two great events in Scripture. The one great event in the Old Testament is the redemption of Israel from Egypt. The great event in the New Testament, of course, is the redemption of man from sin, Christ dying on the cross. Both of them are are very closely related. Not that there aren't other great events, but those are the two great events as you think of the overall picture of Scripture itself. Every Jewish family, as they celebrated Passover, remembered Israel's deliverance. It was a celebration of freedom. It was thanksgiving for God's faithfulness. And it was a memorial of God's redemptive plan. So as they celebrated those things, they may not have understood all of that, but many of them did as they celebrated 
as they gave thanksgiving and as they remembered what God has, God has done. The third background detail is Jesus had performed a number of spectacular uh, miracles. And these were, these were uh, the talk of the town, so to speak. Started off with he fed the 5,000. Uh, the one that really stood out is he raised Lazarus from the dead. In fact, part of the plot to kill Jesus included the killing of Lazarus so they could end the story. Uh, he had, he had uh, healed blind Bar- Bartimaeus. Uh, even the miracle actually of seeing Zacchaeus, a tax collector, coming to Christ was a miracle in itself. So he had, he had performed these spectacular uh, miracles. So all these things are coming into place as he's riding this foal into the city. Now let's go down to verse 36 and 38. Let's look at the crowd. Well, the crowd was rejoicing. Verse 36. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in, earth, in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a parade. It appeared at least to be spontaneous, orchestrated. It says many, a multitude. How many was that? I would say, my guessing is, this isn't the Bible, but I'm guessing it was thousands. And uh, as soon as he was recognized and the word spread through the town, I believe they came out to him. He didn't, he didn't send forerunners in front of him saying, by the way, the Messiah is coming. He was coming. They didn't know when they was coming. But when he came, they spontaneously uh, came and joined in, into this uh, praising and blessing. Uh, Matthew records, as well as Mark and John, the waving of the palms. This is where we get Palm Sunday, the, these branches. They are also worth putting them down in the street along with the cloaks for the, for the colt to the foal to walk along. Although Jesus readily accepted their praise, this is the only, this is the only time that he permitted a public demonstration on his behalf. Why? He was heading to the cross and he knew it. See, he had a divine appointment. And nothing was going to interfere with that. And it says he's, as he comes in, he knows that he's heading towards the cross. He is our Passover lamb, by the way. So in verse 37 and 38, we see the, the parade, or 36, 37, we see the parade. We see the praise. Now, this is interesting, I think, and maybe it's not to you, but it was to me. The praise was come from, from Psalm 118, verse 25 and verse 26. Psalm 118 is a Messianic psalm. This is a psalm that reference specifically to the Messiah. It's, by the way, Psalm 118 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Part of the six, this is a part of a six-psalm praise called the Egyptian Hillel or Egyptian praise. It starts in verse, or chapter 113 and goes through 118. It was, it's believed, and I can't quote for sure in this, but verse, chapter 113 and 114 were quoted before Passover, and 115 through 118 were after Passover. In fact, Psalm 118 may have very well been, if not more of those psalms, but may have been the one that said they sang a hymn and went out after the Lord's Supper. It may have been Psalm 118. If you look back in Psalm 118, the theme is interesting. They're quoting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but the theme of 118 begins and ends that way. 
His mercy endures forever. What a message. His mercy endures forever. It's still enduring. His mercy endures forever. So, here they are. They're praising him, coming in. What are they looking for? They're looking for a conquering king. This is really what they wanted. This is what they're looking for. This is what they're anticipating. The people wanted a king to remove the Roman yoke from their neck. They wanted to set the Davidic kingdom, return Israel to a place of international prominence and world leadership. They were looking for a revolutionary leader. They were looking for a conquering king. Historically, yeah, between the Old Testament and New Testament, is a, a period of silence, about 400 years. During that time, Israel was under the oppression of this, the country called Syria, or the Syrians. And there was a man who, rode, who rose to leadership of the Jewish people called Judas Maccabees. He was called the Hammer. He rallied the army of the Jewish men to fight against the Syrians who occupied Jerusalem. In 163 B.C., they were able to overcome them. He rode into the city on a magnificent stallion, and the people shouted and waved palm branches and cheered and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? You see, they wanted a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah. They even thought that Judas Maccabees might have been the Messiah. He came in, he cleaned out the temple, he burned incense, he offered sacrifices. He, hit, he lit a huge menorah that burned for eight days. There's significance to that, I'll tell you in a minute. He was their hero. Many thought he was the Jewish Messiah. To this day, Jewish friend, our Jewish friends celebrate eight days of the festival of lights called Hanukkah in remembrance of Judas Maccabees coming in and, and conquering uh, them and freeing Israel from the tyranny of the Syrians. But not long afterwards, he was killed in battle, and he was buried. That became the end of the hammer. He wasn't the Messiah. But they were looking. They were looking. They were anxiously looking. Sometimes they were drawing at straws. They wanted to see a conquering king, a revolutionary leader. But Jesus came, not on a magnificent stallion, but on a what? A colt, a foal. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as the Prince of Peace. 200 years later, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the Jews were occupied by another world power, the Romans. They were hoping Jesus would be a military messiah to lead them in battle to overthrow the Romans, but Jesus intentionally rode a donkey to let them know he was coming in peace. He was not a revolutionary like the hammer, but rather he was a redeemer. A revolutionary will is willing to kill others for his cause, but a redeemer is willing to die for others. He came as a redeemer. He came on a fold. He came on a colt. This is all purposeful. He had a different message. Let me give you two lessons I, or observations. There's others you can make. Don't get caught up in the parade and miss the person. The same people who were proclaiming, blessed is the king on Sunday, would be shouting, crucify him by Friday. Sometimes we get up, caught up in the hoopla and we miss the whole message. A young lad, this is back when circuses would travel from town to town. He had walked into town on the dusty road and he saw someone 
nailing a poster up to a tree, and he waited till the man was done and went over and he looked at the poster and it said a circus is coming to town. He was excited because he had never seen a circus before. He ran home and told his parents about it. And he, his dad could pick up on his excitement, and so he said, you have to have all your chores done before you can go. And so he worked hard, worked as hard and fast as he possibly could. And when he was done, his dad came out and actually handed him a dollar bill. He had never seen a dollar bill before. He'd heard about them, but he'd never had one. So dad gave him a dollar bill and said, enjoy yourself at the circus. So he ran to town, and when he got to town, it just so happened the parade, the circus parade, was going through the main street. And, of course, he saw the lions and the tigers and the bears, the elephants, the other animals they had come back, and he kind of stood back because he was in awe of them, a little bit of afraid, even though they were caged up. And at the end of the parade came the clowns. And uh, he was stepped a little closer because he was feeling a little safer. And uh, the last clown uh, came walked through and he ran up to him and he handed him his dollar bill and he went home. He thought the parade was the circus. It may not be the best illustration, but don't get caught up in the parade and miss the person. Jesus Christ. That was just, this is just the leading event to the big event, the cross itself. Second, Don't for, wait for the parade to praise. Let your praise be sincere. Let it be spontaneous, entrenched in Scripture. Are you praising now? Psalm 103, Psalm 104, both start out and end. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The Psalms contain the goodness of God and creation. Bless the Lord, all my soul. We don't have to wait for the parade. We don't have to wait for Easter or Christmas or the New Year. Don't wait for the parade to praise. Our a praise ought to be part of our lips. Praise ought to be part of our soul. Praise ought to be part of our thinking. We don't have to wait for the parade to praise. The Pharisees, verse 39 and 40. The Pharisees, of course, they were complaining. Immediately when they came up, they were telling Jesus to rebuke them, don't say this. This, by the way, is only one of the four Gospels to record this incident. The Pharisees obviously were part of the multitude. They came to see what the excitement was about. They were the religious leaders in Jerusalem or in Judaism. They, portrayed, they were portrayed as knowledgeable. They were religious but they were arrogant, self-righteous, self-serving. They were judgmental. They were a very critical spirit. Uh, if it didn't fit into their four-square world, then it had to be something wrong with it. And the thing is, and this is the real travesty, they knew the Scriptures. I mean, they really knew the Scriptures. But when this was all happening, they did not want it to interfere with their popularity. They didn't want to interfere with their religious practices. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, John chapter 3. He's the one that came by night to speak to Jesus out of fear. He did not want anybody else to identify him. As far as we know, as is related to us in John chapter 12, it's very likely that he was saved through this experience. We don't know exactly when or how, but he was saved. He uh, accepted Christ as the Messiah, as his Messiah. 
We know uh, one of the saddest indictments in Scripture is found in John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be part of the part I'm sorry, because they, were, they wanted the praise of men more than they wanted the praise of God. It's a terrible indictment. They knew the truth, but they silenced people because they were afraid of what others might think of them. And there apparently were several that, that did, but they were, uh, that actually believed in Jesus, but they, they kept their voices quiet. They were in the secret service, so to speak. Why did they complain? Well, the Pharisees hated Jesus. We see that earlier, actually, in the chapter. And then also Matthew 26, verses 3 to 5, says the chief priests and the scribes and elders of the people assembled. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, now listen to this. This is very important because this is part of the story. Not during the feast, lest, these be there, there, lest there be an uproar among the people. Not during the feast. In other words, this is the feast they were talking about. And so what they're saying is, listen, we're going we're gonna to get him quietly, full on aside. We're going to kill him, but not, during the, but not during the feast. Everybody got that? Yeah, we're all on board. Let's go for it. They resented the spontaneous outpouring of praise. That's another reason. They, they, they understood the plans that been, their plans had been made. But here's the key. Jesus had a divine appointment. What happened when Jesus was coming through with the triumphal entry? He, he, made, he was making them speed up their timetable. Why? Because God had a divine appointment. He, he was going to become our Passover. He became our sacrifice. He became our Messiah, our Savior from sin. So he forced them. By doing so, he was forcing them to move up their timetable even though they didn't want to. And so they, they resented the fact that the people were praising them. They, were, they had a smoldering anger. They were incensed, specifically, that they would even be quoting Psalm 118. So what do we learn from this? Don't let anything, anyone, any situation... Hinder your prayers. A life of praise is a choice. And they chose not, even though they knew, to praise. John Wesley was a, about 21 years old when he went to Oxford University. He came from a Christian home. He was gifted with a keen mind, good looks. Yet, in those early years, he was a bit snobbish and sarcastic. One night, however, something happened that set in motion a change in Wesley's heart. While speaking with a porter, he discovered that the poor fellow had only one coat and lived in a small, impoverished conditions that he didn't even have a bed. Yet he was an unusually happy person, filled with gratitude to God. Wesley, being immature, thoughtless, joked about the man's misfortunes and said sarcastically, And what else do you thank God for? The porter smiled and in a spirit of meekness replied with joy, I thank him that he has given me my life and being a heart to love him and above all a constant desire to serve him. 
Deeply moved, Wesley recognized that this man knew the meaning of true thankfulness. Don't let circumstances, situations, people stop you from praising him. It's a choice. Second there, what is hindering you from embracing the Prince of Peace? Remember, he came as the Prince of Peace. He gained to give and bring peace. He was not a revolutionary leader. If you're here this morning, and maybe you're here because it's Palm Sunday. Maybe you're here because it's the traditional for you to come during these two Sundays as we look at Easter. And you're, you're in my hearing, and you are understanding that this is the Prince of Peace. But you've never accepted him as your Savior. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 is a great verse. It's one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. Therefore, the therefore looks back into chapter 4. What happened in chapter 4? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Therefore, just like Abraham, having been justified, justified is just as if I've never sinned. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. How do we get that peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, listen he's the Prince of Peace. You, you, you may, your, your life, your heart, your mind may be in turmoil, but the Prince of Peace can settle all those things. Not just for today, but we're talking about eternity. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the one who has come to bring peace. So what is hindering you from embracing the Prince of Peace? Or are you like the Pharisees, the religious leaders? You know a lot, but you've never put your faith and trust. You've never repented from your sins. You've never turned and been converted by the Prince of Peace. What's hindering you? We certainly would encourage you, even today, to come to know him. Come to myself or one of the pastors or one of those sitting near you to show you from Scripture how you can know the Prince of Peace. The Pharisees were complaining. They had no excuse, folks. They had no excuse. Messiah. The Messiah's weeping. Only a second time recorded in Scripture that he wept. The first time was at Lazarus, when he went up to Lazarus, who had already died. He went up to the tomb. The weeping there is a, is a quiet inner groaning. He may have been weeping for those because of unbelief. He may have been weeping for uh, the Martha and Mary because of their loss. He may have been weeping for the fact that he was his friend, even though he knew he was going to actually raise him from the dead. But there was an inner groaning. The weeping here is more of a lament or a wail. So you have the cheering crowd, you have the jeering Pharisees, and you have the tears of our Savior. And his, his, this is a wail. You have this, he may not even been heard because of all the noise. In his cause for that weeping we can see in these verses as you look at verse 42 he looked back and he saw spiritual ignorance verse 42 says if you had known even you especially in your day he saw spiritual ignorance they wasted opportunities willful ignorance they chose not to believe particularly the pharisees they chose not to believe They chose not to believe his messenger, John the Baptist, who came as a forerunner of Christ and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The very expression, the Lamb of God, brings again to mind the Passover Lamb. They didn't believe the messenger. They didn't believe Christ's message himself, as he said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Or in his own words, as he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. They had the words of the Savior himself. They had seen the miracles, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the healing of the leper, the feeding of the 5,000. They had ample information and opportunity, but yet they chose not to believe. He looked back and he saw their spiritual ignorance. Also in verse 42, he said he looked around and he saw their spiritual blindness. If you had known, even you, especially in your days, the things that make for you peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They have spiritual blindness. The temple, as we see later in this chapter, had become a den of thieves. Lots of religious activity. Lots of motion. But no production. Nothing to it. It was fluff. And you have the Pharisees continuing to complain, their spiritual blindness. When uh, my son went to college, he played soccer, and uh, there was a young man on the team who had incredible skills, a very skilled soccer player. Just It was, it was fun to, to watch him uh, as he, he could take that soccer ball and tap it on his foot and bring it behind his head and all this kind of stuff that guys can do that are coordinated. He was the slowest runner I've ever seen in my life. There was a lot of motion, but no progress. Their spiritual blindness, there was a lot of motion, but there was no progress. There was a lot of Bible study, but there was no practice. There was a lot of information but they didn't embrace the truth and, make it, and allow it to change them. He looked back and saw spiritual ignorance. He looked around and he saw spiritual blindness. And he looked ahead and he saw coming judgment. Look at verse 43 and 44. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment round you. Surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your salvation. He looked ahead and he saw coming judgment. Terrible judgment was coming. John chapter 1, why was that judgment coming? John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own received him not. Luke 19 verse 14, we will not have this man rule over us. They chose not to. In 70 A.D., Rome came up against Jerusalem. They laid siege to it for 143 days. By the time they were done, over 600,000 Jews had been killed. Many thousand had been taken captive to use in the Roman circus as gladiators or slavery. The city and the temple were leveled. This is what Jesus saw. He was weeping. He was weeping, their spiritual ignorance, their spiritual blindness, because he saw judgment coming. When's the last time that you wept or sin? I'm not talking about others' sin. I'm talking about your sin. 
We excuse, that is, we judge others. We shift blame, because God forbid we should ever take responsibility for our own actions. We tolerate, because we've become so calloused and so absorbed in our culture, and embrace, after all, everybody else is doing it, while unashamedly ignoring holiness. As it says in 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16, Be ye holy as I am holy. It's not something you have to pray about. It's a command. Often I pray for you, as well as myself and my family, that God will put a hedge of protection of holiness round about us. And as I was thinking about that, of course, that's to keep evil out, to keep the evil one, evil influences, evil attitudes, to keep it away from us, protect us. But as I began to think of it, I, I, I thought, how many times do we pray for that hedge of holiness to be round about us, to keep evil out, but we never deal with the evil that's already inside? We never deal with the, the, the unholiness, our thoughts, our words, we never deal with our, the aspect of loving to truly love what he loves and hate what he hates in us. When's the last time you wept over sin? You had that overwhelming, shattering of laying prostrate on your knees because of the shame that came upon you when you embraced, when you encountered the holiness of God, to truly love what he loves and hate what he hates. The second thing that I alluded to this morning in our prayer, when's the last time you wept over the lost? God, burden my heart. God, break my heart for children teenagers and adults who live near me. It's easy to pray for the Blackwells and the Smiths and the Millers. But what if God wanted you to go across the street? God, make me bold for you to deliver the truth to those in my circle of influence. We all move and work in different realms Activities, hobbies. Those are open doors. And as Ekhoff told us as he's serving there in Afghanistan, he doesn't know how long the door is going to stay open, and neither do we. William Booth, of course, the founder of the Salvation Army, sent a group of Salvation Army soldiers to a wicked city. They failed in their efforts to reach the people. They were very discouraged. They telegraphed Booth, reporting they had tried everything, but nothing worked. They tried, they were feeding them, they were clothing them, they were housing them, but there was no response to the gospel. They asked for orders, and Booth telegraphed two words in response. Try tears. When's the last time you wept over the lost? 
That's just the beginning of the week as you follow through as the story unfolds. Let's bow our heads, please, at this time as I pray. Appreciate if there's no looking around. Father, we pray as we come to you, first of all, realizing our failures, but yet you see fit to use our humanness. I pray that we will be under the controlling influence of the Spirit of God, that the fruit of the Spirit may be evident in our lives. And even, Lord, as one or more may be here this morning that does not know Christ, I pray, Lord, today is the day of salvation. And others, Lord, as we contemplate the fact of the sin, sinfulness of sin, the lostness of the lost, God, burden us, break us, that this may be a time of great blessing, not just remembering the Prince of Peace, but the Prince of Peace coming home to roost in another life to change it forever. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand, and someone will show you from the Scriptures how to be saved after the service. Is there anyone like that? Secondly, Pastor, to say, Pastor Ken, if you'd pray for me that God would break my heart for the lost, break my heart for holiness. Is there any, any like that? Any others? Father, we, we thank you, God, for that your mercy endures forever. Even in our failings, you use it for good. God, use us. And thank you for this season. But I pray, Lord, that it may become a lifestyle. In Christ's name we pray, amen.